Welcome. This is the Revenue Podcast based on living a revenue culture. Long-term business survival is about maximum profit, and maximum profit is only achieved over the long-term by a purpose-driven, people-first culture. So twice a month, we interview people out there in the real world who are working on that maximum profit and hoping to build a great culture along with that. We're, we're lucky this week to have Jordan Rouse with us. And you're going to enjoy this because Jordan's an entrepreneur who builds inbound sales systems, channels, high-performance teams. And I think of all the people we've had on the podcast, he knows more about sales enablement and the technology and automation that's available today to actually help people generate revenue. He's at the intersection of skill and knowledge and applied technology and the application of charisma to make all this come together. And of all the people that have been on the podcast, I think he represents this century's version of revenue generation. So I'm excited. Jordan, welcome. Well, thanks for the kind intro there, Rick. I really appreciate it. Well, we've had some really interesting calls. And so I think you're going to... Um, give people a view of some things that they they think they've heard of or they think they know maybe really do work sometimes, but too often there are people who don't have all your skills and knowledge who represent they do. And so I think there's some, you know, trepidation in the market. So I'm thrilled to bring you to our audience so they, they know you're here and that you can really deliver on those kinds of promises. So start out and tell us first, how you got to where you are, and then what it is you really do today, because uh, you do some fascinating things. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll go into my history a little bit and, and come back through it and tell you how we got here. So I'm, I'm born in a small town in Canada. And uh, when you grow up in a small town in Canada, uh, you have one of a couple options and one study or one's uh, joining forestry or mining or something like that. And I knew at a young age, I wanted to get out of my small town. So I took up studies in business. And um, that led me on to the years where I did my master's degree in supply chain management in Europe. And uh, I came into that industry and worked for a big Fortune 500 company. And I remember I saved them millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in my first couple of years of working there through process and systems like what we're talking about today. And uh, then I did not get rewarded very well for that. <laughs> and I said, there's there's a disconnect in between these two things. So that led me into sales. Um, I always had a natural um, gift of the gab a little bit, you know, growing up in a small town, a lot of conjecture. I've noticed, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. So what I did was I took all my process knowledge and I started applying it to sales. And learning how things worked from a more analytical perspective. What I saw in sales is most people worked off bravado and they worked off just relationship, but they didn't have, know how to manifest new ones. So I found a lot of companies I saw in the market would stagnate at certain levels because they had 10 to 12 key relationships. And that grows them to a certain extent, but they couldn't expand past that with their teams, their systems, and their processes. And so I would say that's the story of about 95% of small and medium businesses yeah. in North America. Yeah, amen, amen. Now, go into a little bit about your your business model today. And, you know, I know you're a fractional, you also help organizations build their own internal teams. 
and you bring a lot of technology and just as, as you were talking about the supply chain piece, you bring a real methodology and you know a systemic approach to all this that uh, when people say talk about sales enablement, I don't think most people even know what that is or why it matters. And it looks to me like you leverage the heck out of that. Wow. So those are some big topics to throw all together. But in, in essence of how I approach things, it, it's always in the same the same kind of line. It's systems, then process, then people. And the reason is, is no matter how fast you want a car to go in life, if you have the wrong frame, it can only achieve a certain speed, no matter what engine you put in or, or what it is. So we we really look at systems first and advanced systems like Salesforce and HubSpots and Microsoft Dynamics. These are great programs to power Salesforce forward, but then the rest of your tech stack really matters too. So we approach it there first, kind of figure out what they need. And then we go into process. How is that being driven from lead to conversion? And then we jump once we have that all sorted out into people. Now, you brought up an important thing to categorize why we do things. Now, sales enablement, what that means is it's spending more time selling and less time in operational duty. So people at first called it sales automation, automating tasks that come out of it. Then the new vernacular became sales enablement, right? And basically allowing salespeople to spend more time selling and less time wasting. And so the, the thing that managers love sales enablement and salespeople hate it. Why? Visibility is so clear on their actions, which has a high level of accountability and even high performers can escape. Yep. So this, this is very interesting. So this is why we produce the systems and the processes before we, we develop teams is because we have to hire to fit because trying to fit people who are currently there into the new systems definitely yeah. causes a lot of stretch of that elastic band of the individual. So when you're looking at doing this, it has to come in cycles and there's, there's levels of implementation. I bet so many people listening have went out there, put this new system in place and nobody uses it. Right. Nobody uses it or there's huge disengagement from it and fights in the office about you're not entering this in your KPIs. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to do that. I've been doing this for 35 years. Like, OK, those are common arguments. Right. And so it's not just a game about being smart with systems and process or even identifying and hiring the right talent. It's how do I get human engagement within a system to head towards my goals? That's the real question because the human element defines our businesses. You can have the best technical yep. procedures in the world, but humans are the ones who make it happen. Yep. It, my, one of my favorite all-time quotes is, uh, a bad system beats a good person every time. <laughs> and, you know, early in our work, we used to do... Uh, one of the things we would do with our clients is we would measure their cost per sales hour. And when you say that to people, they kind of look at you funny, like, I don't get it. And what it was really all about was it wasn't the cost of the salesperson divided by 40. The first question was, how many hours in a week do your salespeople actually sell? And after talking to about 2,000 CEOs, we found out not one of them could define the act of selling. So they couldn't possibly define their cost per sales hour because they didn't know when their salespeople were doing it. And you know, our, our answer, because I'm a cost accountant by undergraduate education, was very simply, 
sales is moving a deal forward. If there's no deal, there's no selling going on. And so the question became, how many hours in a week do your salespeople actually spend moving deals forward? The first three studies we did were all multi-billion dollar famous companies. And believe it or not, not one of those companies did the salespeople actually move deals forward for an hour a week because they spent so much time doing other stuff, filling out forms, going to meetings, in training, driving from point A to point B. And so what you're talking about completely changes their definition of work. Yeah, and the scope of work that they'd be part of, right? So a great, as, as you were alluding to, it's about maximizing their time selling, but also their efficiency selling. Yep. And then their interactions yeah. within that system. It's it's a complex nature of things, but I like to dumb it down. Like when we look at cost per selling hour, we've seen it revolving between $400 in a highly efficient system to $1,200, $1,500 in an inefficient system uh, yep. within businesses. And people don't usually value things like that. But if you look at your salespeople's time as $1,000 an hour, you take it a lot more seriously. And you're also willing to invest more in marketing um, more in assistance, more in coaching, because it's infinitesimal versus the overall operational cost of the business and the productivity. And this is where most leaders miss it. As you said, they're not calculating the right numbers. Um, and now tell me, uh, you do do both. You, you'll do service for a company if they want you to. You have an organization that you can really manage uh, a, a sales organization for them. And do you also then come in and install organizations and technology for clients? Yeah, that's really interesting. Everyone's a little bit different in the equation that they need to fix it. So we're like the wood glue of the industry. I have people from the frontline individuals will go recruit to power their sales um, all the way up to the systems engineers and the process engineers to come in and take a look. And then we have managers and coaches in those systems that can kind of fill the gaps. But our ultimate goal is to make um, systems and people independent of us that produce great results where we can sit as a sounding board and great advice in the future. So our goal and path is different with every client, but our ultimate goal is for them to get rid of us and be highly productive at the same time. Um, so help me and help us all understand how you hire for those roles in this process, because I'm guessing you have a different formula than a lot of organizations do where they do a simple interview and say, where have you sold before? And, you know, a couple of questions and if they like them and the personality seems right, they hire him. Do you, do you hire in a different way? Um, that. Yes is the answer. The complexity of that is going to take some time to unpack. But let's, I'll put it in a simplistic fashion. People aren't that unique. I know we love to say it, but they're not that unique. They're in, in categories, we can place them. And when you're looking for, you understand first, the first thing you always have to do is seek to understand yourself. And to do that, you have to look within who are the leaders? Who are the successful salespeople currently? Why are they successful? And you study first before you hire. So majority of our hiring process comes pregame. And you know, just like Jim Rohn said, failing to plan is planning to fail. We don't do that. We spend most of our time digging in about what does performance look like? 
Who are the current people that are in leadership? And what would a lightning rod individual look like for them? So when they get together, sparks fly. Like life is really good. It's fun to come to work. It helps develop that culture of winning. But what it is, is a culture of enthusiasm, of motivation, of positivity that comes from them. It's a mindset of winning that everyone kind of adheres to that same methodology. And they have the same level of like openness or the same level of cooperativeness within the organization to be able to push it forward. And yes, it takes different people in different positions, but but in general, um, when you walk into a company, they will feel the same way. You, like you'll get the similar feeling. You won't feel disjointed. So a lot of our work comes pre-game, and we'll use everything from um, interviewing people and asking a series of questions to understand systems, processes, people's interaction, communication, expectations, all these things. And then we'll use psychometrics, which is a fancy word for brain testing, to figure out how people think how they act, their attitudes and habits, and their potentials. And that allows us to suss out ideal avatars for hiring or ideal characteristics for hiring. And as I said, they're not abundantly unique. But where most companies go wrong is they just say, here's the onboarding program, have fun. Well, you got to customize that. And that gives you your retention. But then there has to be intention from the start of the interview process to the end of it. And being able to shape that together. So that's there's a lot to be said there. And that's why we exist. We help companies with that. But it's a puzzle. And once you figure out the pieces, you just start to do them in a slow, very intentional manner. And then you'll have a nice system that can you can duplicate the people you want with. I love that. And you know, obviously this podcast is about building culture. And you you had I, I lost count at about seven seven different things that absolutely make a difference in a culture. And so it sounds like you're, you're selecting for this specific organization's culture. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, we take the leadership um, mostly in constitution, like what's working and what's not. When we, we look at any company, it's going to be defined. The speed of the leader is the speed of the team. Um, traditionally, I find that you have to lead from the front. Even in my own sales organization, I still do a ton of the selling, even though I have directors of that, because that's that's where you get the best information from, frontline information to be reactive to your company. So yeah, in, in essence, we look at leadership. Leadership is so important. And then we help work with the leadership saying, you got a big blind spot here. You want to build a high performance team? You got to work on yourself. A lot of those harder conversations do come up very frequently. Because as we know, entrepreneurs have a lot of bravado or they've lost confidence and there's very little in between, right? And so it's harnessing both of those atmospheres. Are we coming in with low confidence or overly high confidence? And there's usually not much in between those. Yeah, I just, I'm imagining um, so many of the, the companies we've worked with don't have a clue what great sales looks like. And the leadership often doesn't have the, um, the first the understanding, but then the commitment to bringing the support. They somehow think, well, if you're a great salesperson, just go sell. And yet there is infrastructure and you, you have to have the right messaging and you have to have a, a process that makes it easy to buy. Do you end up spending a fair amount of your relationship helping the leadership understand how to manage a great sales team? 
Well, here it is. In my best world and process, a great sales team can almost manage itself. You have to coach them. You have to guide them. But now in sales enablement land, we have really clear accountabilities. And once you've mastered a system and the process, you know your leverage points and what needs to be applied. And when a salesperson knows this, they know exactly what to do to win. And if something's failing in the system, we know exactly what's causing it. So it's like having a perfect doctor to diagnose it. It's still up to you. If a doctor says you have to eat this diet and work out like this, and you don't do that, obviously you're going to get sick, right? And you're going to get worse. Now, teaching managers to be managers, there's two types of individuals. There's the micromanager and then then the walk away macro, let, let it be. And there's very little that's in between. And so what we try to do is articulate systems that provide balance for both of these. And yes, there's coaching. Micromanagers, we teach them they have to lay off. We hire a capable team. And then the team feeds back, be like, hey, these guys are stepping on me. You you need to talk to them. And when we hire those individuals, we're getting feedback from the front lines. And yeah, we have to train managers to an extent. But when they get these great dashboards, they know their numbers, they see their lever points, it gives them these micromanagers a sense of ease and that yeah. ease allows them to be capable in managing because they know this is my lever okay i gotta go pull this now i gotta go pull this now and they there's not running around trying to figure it out yeah and that's where most micromanagers are more analytical yeah and that's where we kind of help out and for macro managers they can just open a dashboard be like yeah i thought it was good it's good right they're they're hands off and they're like okay i see my thresholds coming up for when i have to hire a new salesperson because we're at this capacity or i have to hire some new customer success or a new sdr or account executive or wherever is in the chain we isolate those thresholds to know where and when to hire new capacity and that takes the the mystery out of a system Interesting. So your your dashboard helps facilitate the manager's role to support the team. Yeah, that's right. Management shouldn't take that long. A, a true good manager is spending time out in the field with their people, doing role plays, walking along, developing them as individuals, working on patterns, recognition, problem solving, critical thinking. So uh, it's moving back to the old ways where people used to go shadow a manager and yeah, spend yeah. time with that's where managers really should come in. The data should be able to tell the truth without much effort nowadays. Interesting. Uh, as I'm listening, I mean, this is really exciting stuff. Um, one of the things we see a lot is the difference between uh, the purpose of an organization that you put the sales team in. And some organizations, we use the term mercenary, you know, their only purpose is to go out and, and close as many deals as fast as possible. And they're not terribly worried about the value transfer if they can get the deal closed through whatever skill they have or whatever, you know, um, advertising mission they're on. That, that's about it. Then we have others that they're a very purpose-driven organization. They think about value transfer to their client and they expect to get compensated quite robustly for the more value they actually transfer versus selling a commoditized transaction product. Does First, do you see those two different kinds of companies? And if you do, how does your work uh, support or um, 
you know, change either one of them? Hmm. Well, that is an interesting question because I always define it as you have a complex problem to solve or a simple product to sell. So it almost comes down to um, transactional selling versus consolidative selling and then team dynamics within those. So if I'm looking at a 1099 door-to-door team, that's gonna be way different than if we're building a team for a consolidative specialized sale for consulting. It, they're, they're just in different games. Do we see both atmospheres? Yes, and it's usually generated by what the leader had success in before. And so when you're hiring a sales director, be careful where they come from because they're not going to come in and all of a sudden develop a new habit. Like if they come from a BDC transactional nature, they will bring that with them. There's no way to break that from them. And so it's just different sales styles and different needs and different wants and desires and what produces a result. I always tell people don't fix it if it's not broken. And we, we started there. What's right about the system? What works? Because those are the things you don't want to mess with. Yeah. So, and then in nature, you also want to go off and, and, and duplicate success. So you look at what other competitors are highly successful in the industry. How have they structured their teams? Why have they structured their teams this way? And how do they work internally? And so we can learn a lot from our competitors or even um, other adjacent industries about how they're working within distribution chains to set up sales teams. I, I'm never about reinventing the wheel. I'm about finding something successful and then trying an iteration left or an iteration right, never jumping across the full spectrum. Interesting. Um, you know, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about what I know about your work. Um, I, I would say you're a leader in your space. And as, as you look out, and you, you mentioned the starting out with, you know, Salesforce automation and CRMs, and, you know, eventually we're out to sales enablement. Um, what do you see is going to happen next? What should organizations be thinking about and preparing for? Uh, well, we're, 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 we're in a very turbulent world. And the best thing you can prepare for is never become complacent with your success. And I always say, when people say, my sales channels are great, which new ones are you adding? Because we all know from ad campaigns to things changing in the world that you need to be adding sales channels constantly, right? And if you're not, you're really gonna hurt your future success. So I think it's always keep innovation at the top of your mind. And the trends that I feel are this, we're going to have much leaner sales stats. So there's going to be much higher production because of automation and the new dynamic of like um, a hunter, a closer, a farmer, and a customer success person. But then customer success is basically operations farmer together. Yep. And the sales dynamic I'm explaining is a hunter likes to go get new relationships, a closer's good at bringing deals across, and a farmer's good at manifesting new um, dollars from those accounts, but at the same time, making those people happy. And so this new division is something to pay attention to. So I see that most organizational structures are going to move to this segregation of role. Um, that's going to be one. They're going to incorporate higher levels of technology to run leaner because I believe the day of... Um, the Western dominance of, of, of these spaces is going to end in some way and it's going to be a more unipolar world instead of a monopolar one. So we're going to have to pay attention and compete at much higher levels. And we haven't had to do that for a long time, but around the world is catching up. 
So what does that mean? It means that automation and enablement are not just, I should have them. They're going to be like, I'm going to be required to survive and thrive. And there, there's steps and levels above that about how we develop people and cultures, because this is what employers say. People have choices nowadays. I'm one of those annoying millennials who likes to live where I want to live and do what I want to do and have experiences in time at the same time do well. And the old world and new world still haven't caught up to one another there. And employees are still like, I want a person to do this, like this and like that. And I always say, so what color did you want your unicorn? (laughs) (laughs) Can I use that? (laughs) Anytime. So you, you, you raise a, a, another really interesting area. When you talk to um, young people in particular, but uh, uh, people with, with backgrounds in technology or science, and you mentioned, well, I think you'd be a really great salesperson or we're going to transfer you over into the sales department. Often their response is someplace between horror and uh, anger or fear of moving into the the world of selling. And I'm, as I'm listening, it sounds like the job of a salesperson is getting much more um, professional or scientific or um, teachable and trainable and cross applications to it. Do you think it's actually changing from 20 or 30 years ago? I think Gen Z's and millennials are less dynamic than the generations before them. And the reason being, and and this is, I'm part of those generations. So I want to speak to this. When we're growing up, we were more um, coddled for lack of better words. So we'd have less uncomfortable experiences and our ability to adapt to situations has come way down. So I remember when I grew up on a farm, my grand I'd be like my grandfather would be like, go fix this on the this vehicle or this this tractor or whatever. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. He's like, figure it out. <laughs> he <laughs> sent me out there. You have to figure it out. But most people in my generation haven't had that exposure where they're they're really problem solvers, critical thinkers. So when you try to say you're going to try this new rollout, majorly fear just rises up because they're not used to the new challenge without strong structure. So. When you're looking at a Gen Z or millennial, you have to have the structure before you throw the idea in. Now, there are a few that can adjust to this, but let's look at the individual instances and who those people are. And is it in their goal planning that you've set out together? Is it something they've wanted to explore? You know, it's the days of thrusting people into whatever they're uncomfortable with have ended. Because the opportunity for them is like very grand compared to what it was before. So you have to be very careful as a leader to do this. You have to understand they're not as dynamic in their ability to take everything on because they've been told that taking on too much stress is this and that. And they haven't been able to be put in the fire as much and come out like a little bit, a little bit stronger, a little bit more strong in this generation. It's not the same as sure. When you grew up, Rick, people would be like, go figure it out. This is what you're doing. And you go figure it out. Yep. That's that's the essence. And not, not everybody, but in general, I'm saying structure your roles for Gen Z and millennials and make sure that it's part of their plan. Because as soon as it's not part of their plan and they're not psyched about it, you'll lose them fast. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things I learned as a, particularly in enterprise sales, 
whatever wasn't done by somebody else as a salesperson, you had to figure out how to do it. If somebody didn't have a contract, you had to figure out how to contract it. If they didn't have a good message, you had to create it. If you know you needed sales support, you had to go find it. And if you didn't do those things, you probably were minimally successful going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> what you know, and you really were on this subject in, in what you just talked about. But as you think of things that new younger people should think about as as it relates to selling as a profession and you think about their leadership so what should the young people be aware of uh, so that they can consider this revenue sales world as part of their career and for the people who are leading them what should both of those groups be thinking of it's a really big question because those are two very separate things. Um, First would be like, if you're considering a a profession of sales, I would say that if you want to be dynamic and at the top of it, you have to have a natural curiosity and then compassion for being able to help people through their most difficult times. And that's when they're seeking a solution, right? And you're trying to relieve that level of pain. And you have to see the reward of sales is not the cash, but the ability that you have to help push results for those other people. And you have to be empowered by that. You have to be empowered by being a critical thinker, problem solver, but most importantly, a value giver in terms of solution orientation. And look at it now as like only sell to the people that are truly going to benefit from something that you do. And smile on your face because the old times, trust me, the competition will crush you out if you don't really fast. And that's what I would say. And for a young salesperson, the most powerful word you can ever learn in sales is no. No, we don't do that. No, that's not our specialty. Don't sell them what you're going to under deliver on, but have a great network for myself of referral partners that I can send over their way to help them with those problems. So you know your limits, you're good at saying no, and you can really enjoy a profession in sales as that person. Now, when it comes to leadership, to lead sales and organizations, the days of monetary reward are over. That is like, I think, fourth or fifth on the list of most salespeople is to make a ton of money. Because most of those people within two years or so are out being entrepreneurs or so-called entrepreneurs, what I call solopreneurs. Because they're, they, they're not taking the time to develop themselves, to lead a larger team, which is the biggest dynamic. I think that's what my generation is missing, is the, the respect enough to stay in a position to learn to lead others. They're just saying, I got a great idea. I'm going to go build a business. And they're flipping teams and people and causing distortion and things like this. I think that, that that's where we're missing a gap. So what leadership needs to think about today more than ever before in crafting salespeople is to be intentional about help growing their goals within your vision. And you have to do that and articulate it within their contracts before they sign. So they have a clear path. If you want them to stay five years, plan five years. If you want them to stay 10, plan 10. You know, give them the, the springboard to success. 
show them the importance within the organization. And yes, they're softer. So tell them you're doing a great job, right? You're you're this or that. Like it's the little things. It's not how much you pay them even anymore. Yeah. It's that you're, you're saying they're doing well. You're giving them support. You're listening to them with all my staff each week. I check in and say, how are you doing? And they talk about the job. I'm like, no, how are you? The human being doing here? Does your family need anything? Do you need anything? How can we help you? Right. So it's, it's a lot human that is spectacular and you know it, it was interesting as you started and you were talking about the um, the wanting to be curious and helping and transferring value one of the the most fulfilling part of the work that I get to do is when I work with people who are engineers or accountants or educators or medical science professionals and they are forced into some kind of selling role to help them realize it's really about transferring value and helping that person across from you get to a place they can't get without you. And you're really helping to raise them up in their world. And that once engineers or accountants figure that out, then they see it as an extension of engineering or accounting or medical practice work and it's amazing how excited they get and how thrilled they are now to be part of the process now that they've kind of reframed it in their own mind. So I would agree. Oh. It's it's the little things that you structure yourself which make you happy. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite recruits lately who I've recruited for a company, I said, well, are you willing to do these things? They're like, nope. <laughs> what do you mean? And they're like, I'm really good at this. That's what I'm good at. That's what I like. If you got a position for me in that, I'll do that. And they just, they just knew themselves so well. And I had a high respect. And they're like, I'm willing to learn it, willing to teach it. But I don't want to, at this point in my life, I don't want to go into those new endeavors. I just want to do what I'm really good at. And that level of self-awareness is, is so refreshing. So that's when I say the most powerful thing you can learn in a sales business is saying no. Because no, I'm not the best at that, but I'm willing to learn something, but I want to stick to my lane where I can add the most value to you, right? Well, uh, from a customer's frame of reference, when, you're, when you have the integrity, when I'm there asking you if you want to take my money and you tell me no, all of a sudden you become somebody I'm going to trust for the rest of my life. And I'm going to make referrals to you Anytime it even looks like it fits you, because I know you won't take advantage of whoever I refer to you. You know, and there's something to be said for that. A couple other ones is like when you have a good relationship with someone, don't be afraid to serve them for free. Because it, it, it's never like, for example, a couple of my great partners in, in Europe and across the world, they said, well, we don't have the cash to do this right now. And I said, you know what? You work with some of your services, help me, and I'll fill this in and fill this up for you. And we all started crushing it together and doing things together. So if you lead with a foot of service, and when you see value that you can do, if you have it in your budget as a company, just do it. Serve that person. It comes around. It really does. As long as that person has the right integrity and ethics as you do, that's how our best partnerships have been started. Yes, yes, right? yes. I mean, you're you're def you're defining the purpose this po this podcast exists is the recognition that when you really have a a purpose driven 
people first culture, the people are there to transfer the value that purpose creates. The things you can manifest are unbelievable. Yeah, and exactly. And like this world's hard enough. I always tell people like there's so much going on. You turn on the news, everything's going wrong. And <laughs> if you can provide a level of peace, confidence, truth, and ability to someone else and give them a little sanity in this world, then do that. Do that, pursue that, and just be passionate about it. And I really love what I do. And I think that that, that is the main thing is because I feel like it helps, right? Yeah. And I think at our deepest level, most human beings are conditioned to help one another. And so find that place where you can be of the greatest help to somebody else and then just live for it. And if you can help, help. It's not a question of money. It's like, I can help you. I'll just do this. And as you guys see the fruits of the labors, bam, pay, pay for it. Because when you see the opportunity, take it, right? It's not always monetary. It really isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, often it's, uh, it's amazing how people that you, you, you gave value to them, even though at the moment they weren't going to pay you, how it comes back to you in weeks or days or years later and you go, holy mackerel. Uh, I just, I mean, forgotten I did that for them yet. They're, they're bringing you that, that opportunity or that new learning or something of great value uh, when you least expect it. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing is always just look to be a value. And if you see, you can do something good in the world, it, it always comes around to you. And so many people are all about this contract and this way and that, because they forgot the value of relationship in life. Yes, yes. And everything's powered by relationships. My The whole business that I have, yeah, we're great at channels and things. But again, 40% of my business is referral partners. It is. It just, it just is. Even though we have amazing sales channels, outbound, inbound, everything. It's 40% of my business is through referral. And it's never an easier sale than that. It's just a couple meetings. Here's some information. They said, you're awesome. Let's do this. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, in, in the work I've been doing for over 30 years, almost 35 years. I almost never hear my customers, unless I bring it up, talk about what's the value we can transfer to other people. They're, they're always trying to figure out what can I get from other people? And one of the, the questions we always ask are, are you here to make money from your customer or with your customer? And every company, every human gets to answer that question all day long, every day. And just keep reminding yourself, hopefully you're there to make money with them. If you can help their world get better, somehow your world's going to get better. That's that's really correct in, in all stances. Like we've had a customer lately and um, they do well, you know, hands down, they're doing great. But we added a spectacular person to the mix. Like when they, they had deep, good people, but when you add that A player to the team who fits the systems and the culture so perfectly, it catapults everything. Stress dissolves. Life's better. Yes. Look, I was I was on top of, a, or I was on the bottom of a cold mountain and now I'm on a beautiful beach in Cuba or something. Like life gets better, right? And that is the nature of the value that you can provide. And it's the little things. And as you get good at identifying where those things could fit, 
then that that's truly what you need to work towards. But sometimes it's a game with an individual to, to take them to the place they need to go. Because imagine your client is, is blindfolded and you have to lead them around, right? And they'll, they will never be able to see until you get them to a certain step and you can remove their blindfold. Yes. It's it's what you do with the revenue game is is bringing people into a way of perception so they understand how to value time and business in the correct fashion. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we could from my standpoint, we can talk about this all day long, and and it's going to be great on the podcast. But I want to honor your time, so I have one last question for you. What would you like to leave us with that people should be thinking about that will help us all? you know, make that world a little better place going forward? That's a big, it's a, it's a big question. And I'm a person who says, relentlessly pursue your greatest goal with everything that you have in you. So stop being conservative because if you live your whole life in business as conservative, what happens is you wind up in a conservative place. But if you want to live an extraordinary life, get bold, get people around you who are bold as well. And the only real risk is looking back at your life and saying, I didn't achieve what I wanted to. And so that's what's led me to my future. I'm a naturally conservative person, but I've let go of that. And now I'm really starting to fly as an individual. And I know that's hard for a lot of us who grew up on farms or grew up in those tight knit families to do. But what you were taught is actually rules that that keep you in the middle. And the rules that keep you above is you have to pursue what you think is right at the greatest intensity and speed as you can. And that's what I encourage people to do. And that's why we build systems and processes and teams that allow you to have that in your life, to manifest the greatest possible outcomes. But unless you're bold enough, fortune will never favor you, right? As fortune only favors people. Wow. You're making sure that the system is supporting people to achieve their dreams. Right. Yeah, that's that. That's true. And I kind of live by the old uh, Ricky Bobby quote, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan, this has been spectacular. And I know uh, our, our viewers are going to thoroughly enjoy this and they're probably going to want to watch it a couple of times because you've got some really, really good stuff in here. So I I thank you for being with us today. And maybe we should do this again someday. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I love chatting. I love to spread value with people. And if they ever need help, they can look us up. Well, I thank everybody for joining us. This has been one of of our most exciting uh, interviews this year. And I look forward to seeing you back in a couple of weeks. Thank you.